All right. So I just had some uh, buttons to push. My name is Mike Stover, and I'm a partner in the Surety Law Group here at Wright Constable and Skeen in Baltimore, Maryland. And I'm joined today by Mark Campson, an associate in our Surety Law Group. Mark graduated uh, magna cum laude from the University of Baltimore School of Law, where he was an editor of the Law Review and a member of the Huesler Honor Society. Mark clerked for Judge Lawrence Rudowski in the Maryland Court of Appeals. He's a member of the Maryland, Washington, D.C., New York, and Connecticut bars. He's been selected as a Maryland Super Lawyer Rising Star, and he has presented numerous times on surety issues at the Northeast Surety Claims Conference. Say hello, Mark. Hello, everyone. So Surety Today, as everybody knows, is designed to keep the busy surety claims professional up to date and informed on surety issues. Wherever you are, if you have a phone, you can call in. If you miss a presentation, you can listen to a recording on our website, wcslaw.com, or as a podcast at podbean.com um, under Surety Today. The program is offered only to in-house claims professionals. So far, we've issued about 193 pins and over 361 people have called in to our presentations. And we appreciate that support, and we ask that you pass along our contact information to any of your colleagues who you think might be interested. And, of course, if you have any suggestions for topics or improvements in the future, just let us know. If you have any technical issues, please contact uh, Ms. Jeannie Hyatt, our marketing director, at jhyatt, H-Y-A-T-T, at wcslaw.com. As I mentioned, we, we've muted the lines. Uh, we'll unmute the line at the end for any questions um, and answers. And as I said, we're also recording. Our topic today is interpleaders. Uh, Mark will lead off with a discussion about the nature, purpose, types of interpleader. I will then discuss the mechanics uh, of interpleader generally. And then Mark will cover recovery of attorney's fees and in interpleader actions. And then finally, I'll close out with a discussion about um, discussions of potential excess uh, penal sum exposure for failing to um, institute an interpleader action. So, Mark, why don't you get us started? Good afternoon, everyone. Uh, the nature and the purpose of an interpleader action is essentially to protect a stakeholder from having to defend against multiple lawsuits and from the risk of multiple liability or inconsistent obligations against the stake. So really, what does this mean? Well, an interpleader action is a procedural device used to resolve conflicting claims to money or property, and that is the stake that's at issue. Now, relative to the surety, in interpleader actions, the stake is almost always going to be the penal sum of the bond. Now, essentially, an interpleader action permits an entity holding money or property uh, known as the stakeholder to deposit the stake into the court and let the court decide who is entitled to it and how much that entity should get. Dividing the stake among the claimants like this is often referred to as pie splitting for obvious reasons. Now, in this regard, in addition to protecting... Why? Because everybody gets a pie? Uh, well, a slice of a pie, right. All right. Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Um, but in this regard, in addition to protecting a stakeholder, an interpleader action can protect multiple claimants to the stake where the claim on the, on the stake exceeds the total amount because the court will distribute the limited stake equitably amongst claimants to ensure the fund is not depleted before all claimants are at least partially compensated. And I think we can all agree that this happens at least from time to time uh, on claims on a particular bond. So in sum, for the nature and purpose of the interpleader action, the goal is to resolve 
a many-sided dispute economically and expeditiously in a single proceeding, primarily to protect the rights of the stakeholder, in our case would be the surety, but also to protect the claimants to the extent that that matters. Matters uh, to them. Yeah, to us, I mean, right? So interpleader actions are available in federal court and in most state courts. And in federal court, there are two ways to initiate an interpleader action, either by federal rule of civil procedure or by a federal statute. A rule interpleader is permitted under the federal rule of civil procedure 22, but rule interpleader does not give rise to jurisdiction in federal court without another independent basis, such as a federal question or diversity of citizenship amongst the parties. And the other main thing to know about rule interpleader is that it doesn't require the deposit of the stake into the court. So if you pursue a rule interpleader, you don't have to write the check for the entire amount of the penal sum in the surety context. Uh, right in the beginning of the litigation, you can actually hold on to it. The statutory interpleader is based on the Federal Interpleader Act, and unlike rule interpleader, it expressly provides jurisdiction in federal court as well as providing certain remedies that flow directly to the stakeholder that are not afforded in a rule interpleader, and we'll discuss that uh, in the next section. One of the main differences between rule interpleader and statutory interpleader is that statutory interpleader does require deposit of the stake. So if you want the added benefits, of statutory interpleader, you have to write the check and deposit it with the court, basically along with the complaint, and you know you, you may never get that money back, basically. But that's sort of the purpose of the interpleader because you feel there are valid claims to it. So both rule and statutory interpleader embody the same supporting policies of protecting the stakeholder and generally perform the same function. So they can often be considered redundant, but because they have two different types of jurisdictional requirements, one or the other may not be available, so that's something that needs to be evaluated before filing in federal court. But in any event, one of the primary benefits of instituting in federal court under either rule or statutory interpleader is that the procedure and mechanisms are all going to be the same across the country in any jurisdiction that you're in. You don't have to worry about individual jurisdictional quirks or nuances that arise in state court. And uh, like I said, in state court, in most states, interpleaders are available. We're in Maryland, so for example, Maryland Rule of Civil Procedure 2-221 expressly permits interpleader. But in my experience, in interpleader actions in the state court of Maryland, for whatever reason, they're simply not as well-versed in interpleader actions as federal courts, and they're not quite as efficient and don't run as smoothly. And I would say that the primary reason a stakeholder would want to file in state court is that they have to, not that they want to, because they don't meet the jurisdictional requirements of federal court. Now, there are two types of interpleader, um, not ruler statutory like we were talking about, but two conceptual types of interpleader. And one is strict or true interpleader, and the other is in the nature of interpleader. If the action is a strict or true interpleader, the stakeholder asserts no claim to the stake. In other words, the stakeholder is disinterested in that money or property it's depositing with the court. And in the surety context, that could arise in circumstances where the surety recognizes the validity of all the claims made on the bond that exceed the penal sum. They don't claim uh, any rights to retain any of the penal sum, and they just want to deposit it in the court and let the court sort out who gets what. By contrast, if the action is in the nature of the interpleader, 
then the stakeholder claims an interest in the stake. So it's the opposite, obviously, of true or strict, that the surety would claim an interest in the penal sum. And this would arise in cases where, although there are multiple claimants, some of those claims the surety doesn't feel are valid or they feel they have uh, you know, proper defenses to, and they think that they can retain at least a portion of the penal sum or the stake that's deposited in the court. So to put this all in perspective, when a surety receives multiple claims on a bond that exceed the penal sum, but it is unsure who has valid claims or to what extent each claimant is owed, an interpleader action can provide a good option to protect the surety from multiple lawsuits, potentially inconsistent liabilities, and as we'll address a little bit later, um, some liabilities where the penal sum is depleted before it's paid out to all the claimants. Mike? All right, Mark, thanks. So I'm going to focus on the mechanics of, uh, of, of interpleader actions. And, and really, I'm not going to get into uh, too deeply into any kind of the procedures or that kind of stuff because that's really for your outside counsel. Uh, I want to give an overview of some of the um, of the interpleader actions by focusing on some of the specific attributes of, of an interpleader action so that you can have familiarity with the major benefits of an interpleader action and can decide in the future if these benefits fit your particular facts in a given matter so that you can know, you know, know what your options are, know that interpleader is an option. Uh, I'm also just going to focus on federal interpleader because it has broader application, more uniformity in comparison to the various uh, interpleader statutes and rules in the various states. As Mark was talking about, uh, there's a lot of lack of uniformity throughout the country on that. So the first attribute of federal statutory interpleader is this concept of minimum diversity. So ordinarily, in, in order to obtain federal subject matter jurisdiction, you would either need to have a federal question jurisdiction basis or diversity. So federal question would be something like the Miller Act. Uh, diversity requires that the plaintiffs all be from a different state, a citizens of a different state, than all of the defendants. And the amount in controversy has to exceed, I think, 75,000 is what it, what it has been. I don't know if they've changed that recently. I should have checked. But so, for example, if one of three plaintiffs is from Maryland and one of the defendants uh, is also one of ten defendants is also from Maryland. Well, you don't meet <coughs> diversity requirement. You need to have complete diversity in order to meet uh, diversity jurisdiction in general. Now, under the interpleader federal interpleader statute, the amount of the stake is, needs only be five hundred dollars. So the the right there, the diversity amount has been lowered from seventy five thousand to five hundred. And to meet diversity in an interpleader action, all there has to be is two of the claimants have to be from different, have to be citizens of different states. So if the plaintiff is a citizen of Maryland and one of ten defendants is from Maryland, that's fine because the, the citizenship of the plaintiff is irrelevant in interpleader actions. Um, as long as there is one other, as long as two of the claimants are from different um, jurisdictions, different citizenships, then you, you meet the minimum diversity requirement for federal interpleader. Uh, federal rule interpleader, as Mark was pointing out, is a little bit different. It does require traditional uh, meeting the traditional diversity requirements. A second attribute of federal statutory interpleader is that you can achieve nationwide jurisdiction. Um, ordinarily, in order to sue someone in a jurisdiction, you'd need to have a statute that allows you to do that, like the long-arm statute, or the person has to consent to the jurisdiction, or they have to have constitutionally required minimum contacts with the jurisdiction in order to obtain personal jurisdiction over that individual in a given forum. But under federal 
interpleader statute, the court has given nationwide jurisdiction over all claimants to the stake wherever they reside. 28 U.S.C.A. Section 2361 states that a district court may issue its process for all claimants where they reside or may be found. Thus, in statutory interpleader, the minimum contacts of the claimant with the jurisdiction are irrelevant, and this gives the surety maximum flexibility in instituting the action and allows the interpleader to bring all claimants and potential claimants before the same tribunal, thereby furthering the nature and purpose of interpleader action, as Mark was talking about. A third attribute of federal statutory interpleader is the ability to sue unknown claimants. Mark and I had a case in um, the D.C. federal court where the, where the principal was being uncooperative and ultimately went out of business, and so we had no idea how many potential claimants there were. There were numerous claimants. There was going to be claims in excess of the penal sum of the bond. So we convinced the court to allow us to, uh, to provide notice uh, by publication to any potential unknown claimants on this bond to try to get everyone into this action so that at the back end when we got our discharge, we wouldn't have anybody coming out of the woodwork saying they didn't get notice. And we were permitted to proceed on the basis of providing uh, a constructive notice to potential claimants to give us some protection there. You can get that typically in interpleader actions. Um, finally, um, uh, one of the additional features or primary features or benefits of an interpleader action are the injunctive relief and the discharge that you can get. Um, 28 U.S.C. 2361 permits the federal court uh, where the interpleader action has been filed to issue an injunction. The statute that pro provides that in any civil action of interpleader or in the nature of interpleader, a district court may enter its order restraining any claimant from instituting or prosecuting any proceeding in any state or United States court affecting the property, instrument, or obligation involved in the interpleader action. So obviously this is, this is a nationwide injunctive power. It applies to all courts, federal and state. It is broad and extensive and gives the court the ability to stop ongoing cases or prevent cases from being filed against the surety or the bond once you've, uh, once you've instituted the interpleader action. And these injunctions can be given uh, right away initially in the case without any notice or opportunity of the opposing parties to uh, be heard or to come before the court. So you can get that injunctive relief kind of like a bankruptcy. You, and, and, Kind of like a bankruptcy, you also can get a discharge. At the end, you, you deposit the penal sum of the bond, and then you, you, you uh, petition the court to be discharged, and you get a discharge absolving you from any further liability on that bond. So that's one of the primary benefits of the interpleader action. All right, Mark, turn it over to you. All right. Uh, I'm going to be talking about attorney's fees and costs recovery now. And in federal court, you can definitely get attorney's fees and costs, and in state court, again, it's going to depend on your jurisdiction, but in Maryland you can. I'll talk about that briefly. But first, in, in federal court, uh, generally costs and fees are only going to be available to the disinterested stakeholder. That would be in the true or strict interpleader action we talked about earlier, where you just deposit the funds and, and you know you're not getting them back. You have no interest in them, uh, as opposed to in the nature of interpleader, where you, you want to retain some of the funds, and it really turns maybe into more of a little bit of true litigation. Um, now, initially, under federal law, there is no express provision in either rule or statutory interpleader for fees and costs. But regarding costs, Federal Rule of Civil Procedure 54 governing judgments permits courts to award costs to a prevailing party. This does not include attorney's fees. 
but courts nonetheless recognize that this rule applies to statutory and rule interpleader actions as far as recovery of costs for court filings and, and other costs you may incur. Regarding fees, again, there's no express statutory or rule authorization for fee recovery in interpleader actions, but courts are permitted within their discretion to award fees under essentially the uh, traditional rules of equity. So it's, a, it's always going to be a discretionary-based award, which means that you may get it and you may not get it. It depends on uh, uh, the facts of each case. Now, fees are typically only awarded to disinterested stakeholders, as I said, that have deposited the stake into the court, conceded liabilities to the full value of the stake, and requested a discharge from the litigation, as Mike was talking about earlier. And generally, those arise in your statutory interpleader, where you're disinterested and you seek a discharge after a filing, um, and not so much in the rule interpleader, where you may not even have deposited the fee uh, I'm sorry, the, uh, the stake into the court. Now, importantly, requesting fees does not constitute an interest in the stake, which would turn a, interest, a, not a disinterested stakeholder into an interested stakeholder. Um, but the court finds that, you know, even though you, you want your attorney's fees to be paid from the stake, that does not make you an interested party. Now, the philosophy behind awarding fees is that the disinterested stakeholder has been forced to expend time and money to resolve disputes that it had no hand in creating. And I think in the surety context, really, this arises generally because the surety is just providing the bond. It's not out there actively doing the principal's obligations, at least at the outset. And so it's clear that the principal's failures are, are what are creating the disputes and the need for the interpleader action in the first instance. And that's why a surety would seek fees in an interpleader action. The amount, of the, uh, the amount of the fees and costs recoverable are generally limited to those incurred in initiating the interpleader action, and they're also limited generally by reasonableness. So when you're seeking fees, you're really limited only to the cost of drafting and filing a complaint and related motions to the complaint, such as you know, motions for depositing fees, your affidavits, uh, and other, other forms like that, and for the court costs that you've incurred in filing. A stakeholder is really not going to be able to recover for the money and time and spent in attempting to resolve a dispute prior to litigation, and that includes pre-litigation investigations. And finally, the smaller the stake, I think generally the rule of thumb is the smaller the recovery of attorney's fees are going to be. And that's something to keep in mind when you're putting together the filings. Now, in state court, like I said, Fees are, are, are um, awarded in, in most states. In Maryland, for example, the Maryland interpleader rule expressly provides for awards of cost and fees, which is actually different than federal interpleader. So you have to be aware of what jurisdiction you're in uh, if you're in state court and have your counsel check on that. Now, in both federal and state court, fees must be pled in the complaint, and like I said, they're within the discretion of the, of the trial court. And for this reason, while attaining fees is possible, it's not always a slam dunk, so to speak. And now briefly, for some examples, in Maryland State Court, I had an interpleader action for a surety on an auto dealer bond, and the penal sum there was only 25000 and the court denied us all of our fees and costs, and its grounds were preventing depletion of funds that would be distributed to individuals who had been harmed by the principal slash auto dealer's actions. 
I think this is a pretty unique situation where all of the claimants happen to be consumers, and the court was really looking out for, uh, you know, based its findings on a consumer protection concerns. Now, in federal court, certainly case law is replete with examples of disinterested stakeholders, including sureties, being awarded their attorney's fees. So while it is discretionary, it's not uncommon. And by way of example, and to draw a distinction with state court, I've filed numerous interpleader actions, you know, around Maryland, up and down the East Coast, for insurance carriers, not, not sureties specifically, but for insurance carriers. And in those cases, we've been awarded fees every time, even though the defendants in those cases are also individuals. But in the surety context, uh, Mike referenced a case we had in D.C. a minute ago, and in that case, was in the District of Columbia Federal Court, and there the parties ultimately reached an agreement as to how the stake would be distributed amongst the claimants. And part of that agreement was attorney's fees for the surety. And this is pretty interesting because there the surety was able to recover some of its costs and fees, and it avoided the risk of getting a low fee award or no fee award. And the claimants were able to avoid having unusually large or, or larger than they desired fee award, reducing their stake in the claim. So that's always an option, too. Once the interpleader is filed, you could seek to get fees through an agreement, not necessarily the court. Mike? Yeah, okay. I'm going to turn the um, 